Georgia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music and maps to money and modernity, this is where ideas come together. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with us in studio is our special guest, uh, Boyke Rebine. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Glad to have you here uh, <clears throat> all the way over from Humboldt. Uh, and uh, we're going to hear a lot more about uh, your, uh, your latest research. Um, but I also want to introduce in studio um, two of our special guests. Hi, John Hartman speaking. <laughs> Retired. Yeah, that's right. Happily. But still alive. <laughs> <laughs> professor Emeritus and uh, distinguished research professor. Uh, uh, and uh, we have we have a real we have a real continuity here across right. the table. I just realized of, of Thai language. What year did you start teaching? Uh, seventy four. Seventy four. So from 74 to 2019. To, to, yeah, yeah. 40, 45 years. Of, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, of course, uh, of course, uh, Ganjana uh, is here with us in studio as well. Um, and we, we, heard a, we heard a great talk about uh, inequality and habitus in Southeast Asia and Thailand. So my first question for our listeners is, you know, and it revolves around social equality, inequality. Define that for us. What is it? And it's more than economic. What is what when we talk about inequality or social status, what are, what are we talking about really? Usually when we hear the term inequality and when we uh, read about it in the papers or wherever, even in academic literature, um, what we see is economic indicators. These are usually right. produ uh, produced by the World Bank and associated institutions and they tell us how much money a particular person has or has as his or her di disposal. But it doesn't tell us very much about the structures beneath and beyond these uh, economic figures. Anybody might have a lot of money in some point in his or her life and might lose it all. An example would be those sports stars uh, that we're seeing. <laughs> Uh, of course, at the high point of their career, <coughs> they make millions um, a year. But then you look at them, you ask them 10 years later, 20 years later, after they finished their career, how much of this money is left. And invariably, you'd see they would be running, I don't know, a small shop around the corner or something like this, and all the money would be gone. And the few people who still have their money look at them who they are they would almost invariably come from a higher class background which means uh, they would have had money before and they just keep the money they have for example in germany we have this uh, team manager of the national soccer team uh, he's quite famous he won the european championship and everything and he has a lot of money or he's still making money as the manager of this organization. But his father was on the board of one of the world's largest companies, um, which is a pharmaceutical company. So he, in fact, okay. if at all, was 
downwardly mobile <laughs> and not <laughs> making more money. And the same would be true for <laughs> others uh, in his circle. But there, but what what other indicators outside of economic calculate into social inequality? So money can come and go, but what are some of the other indicators? This is a good question. Money, of course, is important, and you also have to look at money. But money alone will not tell you about the social position of uh, an individual or a social group. You have to look at other factors like the social connections. Who do you know? Do you know influential people? Do you know people who will help you in unfortunate uh, times, who can get you out of a an unfortunate situation, this type of thing. You have to look at education and educational titles. You have to look at capabilities. What did people learn in their lifetime? Uh, you know, did they learn foreign languages, musical instrument, this type of thing? Um, and also, did they learn to behave in a particular environment? Do they know uh, what, say, forms they have to adhere to in a particular environment. And all of these factors play a role. And to sort of limit the study to one factor, like money, uh, does not really give you an idea of the social reality. Right. And I love that you made that distinction between social mobility is not the same as economic mobility because it really got my brain juices running during your talk in thinking about the example you gave where the British nobility was cash poor but title rich and land rich. And so they had to marry rich American kind of um, new money who were looking for, their, um, <coughs> looking for social prestige. Despite having all this money, they didn't have the social you know, mobility. They couldn't get into maybe certain venues or certain events, didn't get invited. And so they marry into the British mobility. And then um, thinking about as an educator, too, the idea that um, education is supposed to be an equalizer, right, in, in kind of the capitalist um, neoliberal model. But we have issues in trying to retain first generation, the distinction of first generation um, university students and how that that can make or not make a difference in their life, the university education. So it really got, it made so much sense um, to hear that in, in ways that clarified what we see in our surroundings. Yeah, and of course you also see um, if you have money you can buy your way into other privileges such as education like these these um, Hollywood types. <laughs> True. Pay, yeah. the, the current scandal. Or, or, or even the, the, the Kushners, right? His father paid $200 million to Harvard to get his son admitted. So, yeah, if you have capital to begin with, you can capitalize on it, so to speak. So this this uh, sort of underlying all this or the sort of this... Your your interest in studying social classes and how and how they function. Maybe we should uh, should talk about the classes themselves. How how are they defined? What are their legacies? Where do they come from? Sort of the um, pre capitalist heirs, and then and then maybe a bit about some of your methodological uh, kind of intellectual takeaways from this. So looking at all these factors I have mentioned together. Um, we can see that in all capitalist uh, societies, boundaries emerge between social classes, as you said, 
uh, that are statistically not crossed. So it's unlikely statistically that people uh, move from one class into another. And if they do so at all, we have to check whether this is true for the next generation as well. And it often isn't. So if we find a single individual, uh, he or she is often an outlier. And uh, this continuity of social class is something that struck us in our research. So we tried to find out what it's based on. And we saw that um, uh, what Professor Hartman referred to as uh, capital is being passed on from one generation to the next. So of course, the rich have money, which they then inherit to the next generation. But they also inherit things like education, like capabilities and social connections and forms of behavior, social skills as well. And all of these are sort of passed on as a package from one generation to the next. And of course, the next generation uh, may fail on this or that aspect or will add something else. But in general, all the char characteristics will be rather similar from one generation to the next. And if we sort of follow this back in history, we will see that um, the contemporary classes are heirs of pre-capitalist ranks uh, or strata or whatever existed in this particular society. And of course, it doesn't just follow with privilege that also with underprivilege exactly. with, with where, where slaves um, in the American South uh, unsurprisingly become sort of the... the the lowest class sort of uh, African-American communities. The, those, those continuities are strong at, at all ends of that spectrum. Exactly. So the entire structure uh, of pre-capitalist uh, society is transformed, but it's not being done away with. Uh, it is the root of contemporary inequality or social classes. Only those societies who really attack this structure um, do have some social mobility across the transformation. This may um, refer to certain social groups, like affirmative action, but it can also refer to the entire society. But so far, we've not really seen any society that tried to sort of e equalize the entire population. It's always that some are being privileged uh, and others not, or that uh, what is usually the case, the entire structure of inequality is being ignored. I, I want to come back to the question of, of, of habitus soon, but maybe um, for, our, for our eager Southeast Asianist listeners, um, give us a, uh, a sense of the historical structure of of Thai society, you know, like so, the from the mandala system, um, a sense of what it looks, what it looked like, and and your argument about um, how that's how that evolved historically. So across Southeast Asia, basically from what is Northeast India today, all the way to the Philippines, excluding just a few pockets of Indonesia and Vietnam. Um, we see the mandala system. This is Oliver Walters's idea uh, that he sort of developed with regard to Indonesia. But we see the same thing in the rest of Southeast Asia or almost entirely uh, in 
all of Southeast Asia, a substructure that exists everywhere and that still informs contemporary structures of inequality and uh, contemporary even habitus and ideas. And this structure was transformed in all societies, but in different ways and to different degrees. First of all, um, by, say, indigenous uh, concentration of power and wealth, uh, like monarchs, uh, kings, princes, and so on, tried to integrate societies and created more of a hierarchy rather than, um, say, a more flexible and fluid system. And then secondly, by colonialism, and uh, the societies were uh, colonized by different powers, so it matters if it was the Dutch, the Portuguese, um, the British, the French, or whoever came. And they transformed the societies differently. And also the societies were colonies for different periods of time. And Thailand is special because <coughs> it was never uh, a colony. So in all of these countries, the previous mandala structure was uh, transformed in different ways. And the mandala structure itself um, is characterized by uh, rather autonomous villages at the base rather autonomous because of the space and the geographical structure of Southeast Asia. So it's possible, or it was possible even until quite recently for a village to uh, pull out of a uh, relation of power or even domination by simply migrating elsewhere. And all of these villages um, sort of uh, at times came under the domination of larger villages, more powerful villages, which then uh, developed into towns, and at times withdrew from these relations. And this whole structure was oscillating to the degree that sometimes uh, a very centralized structure emerged, uh, where much of the population was integrated into a single hierarchy, and in uh, periods where uh, something like almost complete independence of most of the units was given. So the the your idea is that that it matters that Thailand wasn't colonized and some of these 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 systems um, persist. So um, your your research design. Um, so how did you how did you decide to to study this? Um, we're going to look at social structure in Thailand. Uh, tell us about how you organize that. Well, this particular research about Thailand is rooted in something that I would refer to as research program. We have been doing research on social inequality, as both of us defined it earlier. Um, for like 15 years now and we started in Laos and Brazil then made a comparison then applied the concepts methods and ideas to Germany to a country of the center if you like and from there we spread to many other countries and of course myself uh, being specialized on Laos um, it's rather evident that you also have a look at Thailand because linguistically and uh, historically they are very much connected. 
and this particular research uh, project on Thailand is also quite old. So we started probably also 10 years ago, something like that. But um, most of the participants are Thai professors who have other areas of specialization. So they come and go, they contribute, and then they sort of leave the project. So there wasn't much continuity until uh, former PhD students of mine from Thailand took charge of the pro project and then sort of uh, pushed it forward. So why did you choose? So Laos, it makes sense why you chose Laos, right? But why Brazil? What about Brazil in particular that you thought would be a good starting point of comparison? That's a good question. That's the origin of the project. A colleague from Brazil um, came to Freiburg, which was the university where I was working at the time. And I invited him to give a paper on his theory of inequality in peripheral societies. So he did. And I had to contradict because I said everything you say may be true for Latin America, but nothing of what you said is true for Asia, especially mm. not Southeast ah, Asia. And a project was born. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a nice origin story. <laughs> yeah. And um, you mentioned a little bit, too, that uh, the system in Thailand, so we'll call it, well, use the Thai word, ban mueng, right? The ban mueng system where a market that serves as kind of the heart of the community grows into a city, then it becomes prestigious enough or worth something enough to fortify. Then all the next thing you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a city state and, and so on. And then it evolves into this, uh, Sagdina, uh, system, right? So can you explain a little bit for our listeners, for those who might not be familiar with, with that, pre-capitalist system that we're about to see how it works alongside or against or with capitalist uh, social structure. So what you refer to as Ban Muang is um, a version, if you like, of the Mandala model, but um, viewed through indigenous eyes, so to speak, not only linguistically, but also mentally people in the Thai-speaking countries or areas would immediately understand what that refers to, whereas mandala would not immediately be understood as a concept um, in these areas. So I prefer Ban Muang because uh, the population under study also uh, understands and can contribute and criticize uh, what I'm saying. This uh, mandala or Ban Muang structure uh, especially in Thai principalities, but also in Laos and Shan states, uh, Sipsong Pana seems also that it evolved at parts um, transformed into a more hierarchical structure. When particularly powerful uh, monarchs emerged, they tried to um, integrate the entire population of a particular region into the structure and um, sort of grouped them, them into different ranks. These ranks corresponded to the Muang ranks to a certain degree, but became more formalized because each rank was literally given a number that corresponded to the status. 
So there's ample documentation of this as far as the Ayutthaya state, the late Ayutthaya state is concerned, so late 18th century, which means exactly at the uh, transformation of Thailand from the pre-colonial state to a nation state, to a modern nation right, state. Right, a more centralized um, power, like exactly, you mentioned. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we can see uh, exactly at this uh, very important, yeah, if you like, in this very important period, late 18th uh, century, that a Sakdina system existed and every person, every individual was given a number that corresponded to his or her rank. So the lowest person was given the number five and the king had uh, the number one million and most people were in between, but rather towards the lower <laughs> end. Speaking of inequality, right? <laughs> yes, most people had uh, the number 20, like this mm. was the regular person's uh, status. Right, a, non, a non-slave, because a slave exactly, had five, exactly. and then a, a prai would be exactly, 20. Exactly. Yeah, you mentioned uh, linguistics and, and language and borders that people could not cross, and wasn't that fortified by language. I mean, you have the monarchy, you have this royal vocabulary. We had uh, the honor of granting an honorary doctorate to Princess Sur- uh, Sirenton here at NIU five years ago, and somebody asked me, how did you talk to her? Well, I guess I, we talked in English, but there's, That's a, how whole, you get around there's that, yeah. a whole vocabulary of how you talk to royalty and, and people in different social classes, and it's enforced. You have to talk up you know, if you're a lower social status, you have to use all the polite forms and in talking up to people, and they can talk down to you, and then you can use pronouns for for insulting people. So I think language p- plays a uh, maybe a st- even right. stronger role uh, in, in determining social class in Thailand in particular. And I think uh, once you know the monarch is gone, like in Laos, the 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 monarchy is, is no longer there, and the Communist Party has sort of taken over. So that, that plays into it, too, and you can imagine, try to imagine, but the future in Thailand, if these things might shift and the pronouns might shift with it, because that's very controversial now, politically. It's I'm making hot, all kinds of faces. A <laughs> hot, hot potato, yes, Ganjana can talk about, but that's politics. We're but, but, supposed to be but John can say that, because he's like a, a, like a 500,000 on the ranking. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> right, but, I, but that's part of the capital that you mentioned earlier, that you pass on, right? If mm. no one teaches you the honorific forms or the royal register, then you don't really learn it as well, and you don't have use of it. And I have a, a funny story of, of being in audience with uh, Her Royal Highness uh, Crown Princess uh, Sirinthon is... She was doing a dedication ceremony in in Madison, Wisconsin, for a Thai pavilion at at a botanical garden, and you know they they lined us all Thai students up to be in the audience, and she was going one by one, and she speaks normally to you because again, like Ajan um, John said, she's speaking down. She doesn't need to speak up to you. She's the you know crown princess, and so she says hello in Thai. Oh, so all the normal. pressure's on you to like she right, can right. Say what you're so she's just being normal. It's like oh hi, how are you? What's your name? What do you study? And so she's going down the line, and everyone is perfectly 
you know, practice their royal register. And and me, you know, being Thai American and growing up in the United States, I learned it uh, when I was in Thailand as a child. But I, it, it, we just never used it. And so she got to me, and I just froze, <laughs> and I just stared at her, and she stared at me back, and she said, "Okay, then." And then she just moved on to the next person. My mother was. Fuming because my mother was were doing yeah. the job of interpreting for her during the visit, and so her linguistic capital as a, a Thai professor <laughs> did not pass on to me because you know we cross the ocean and uh, things change. But uh, it's yeah, it's a personal example of of what happens uh, when when that transference doesn't quite uh, doesn't quite succeed. So this system then of points. Quite literally, unequal uh, assigning of points. How does it? Can you give us some examples of of how this still exists in Thailand despite um, the many centuries that have happened since the late 18th century? Yes, <clears throat> I'll give you two answers to this. The first one refers back to your conversation about language, because this still exists. So the different linguistic registers. Uh, that you have uh, still exist today, plus a new register which you could refer to as that of the capitalist society, which mainly uh, only comprises personal pronouns. But the old register is very sophisticated, especially towards the top, where fine differences in rank have to be uh, mirrored in language use. Towards the bottom, not so much, so the peasants, they all speak uh, with each other, other in terms of address, which are basically kinship terms. So there is inequality, if you like, but uh, everybody becomes a father and a grandfather at some, some point. It's based on age, yeah. Exactly, uh -huh. at some point. So you are socially mobile in your life course because you grow older, that's it. But um, in the... Sak dinar system, this is not the case. You're born a peasant, you die a peasant. And the same would be true in a class society, more or less. But there it's determined not by a title or a rank, but it's determined by uh, capital and habitus and the statistical reproduction of all of this. So we can see in Thailand that the old structure still exists because people still use these terms and are expected to know the terms as you just indicated. So one example you gave yourself. And another example would be that um, you can see in everyday life how people are moving between the structures. So most ties would not be um, clearly anchored either in capitalism or in Sakdina, in pre-capitalist structures, but they would have uh, incorporated uh, habitus traits from both structures, and they would know how to use them. So you can see in everyday life when Thais travel home to their family, which would usually uh, imply a trip from an urban area, especially Bangkok, to a more rural area. They can adapt to the setting and then back. So they know how to behave in the rural context and they know how to behave in the urban context uh, they live in. And most of us 
in Western countries would not be able to do this because we don't have roots in the rural areas anymore. Yeah, you, they, they can code switch quite easily. Exactly. They'll go home and they speak their local northeastern Thai or Lao-like dialect, but when they're in Bangkok, it's uh, standard exactly. Thai speech. Exactly. Yeah. Do, are they? Are they? Are those individuals? Do the their peers in Bangkok know that? Are there? Are they so good at code switching that that a person on the street wouldn't know that if they were talking to them? A person on the street would they know that they're really? Freely they come from a village. Yeah. Well, their their accent might. Uh, I remember when my wife moved into Bangkok. She came from Banpong, and the. Third person uh, pronoun is 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 uh, cow, right? And she she had the t- she had a Banpong accent, and the Bangkok students from Bangkok identified. Okay, you're you're oh. a village person. You're not right. A Bangkokian. And I have the opposite problem: is they always know I'm from Bangkok. Always a hundred percent. It doesn't matter what I'm wearing. It doesn't matter if I'm speaking. Just walking through, um, I have. Fa- a few family members who live in the rural areas, and it does not matter. They always know, and they always ask, oh, how long are you visiting? I'm like, oh, how do you know? I'm like, oh, we just know. We look at you, just looking at you, right? Which is, I'm like data. <laughs> I'm just proof of, of Dr. Rabine's <laughs> um, statistical research. <laughs> yeah, your dress and, and your, your body language, too. Yeah, I don't, sometimes because I'm just standing ba- there. Yeah, you're you know? supposed to be very, uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, Professor Un talk about that, that, in Cambodia, they know that he's lived outside Cambodia for a long time. He just just by the way he walks or the way he just carries himself, it's just uses his hand. Your hand gestures yeah, yeah. gives it away. Yeah, because a, a polite Thai woman should keep her hands uh-huh. to her side. So, so you you mentioned you brought up that that you had this interesting international team um, with a lot of Thai scholars in in this particular case and and. European scholars, how do the opinions of your Thai colleagues vary from those of uh, the European researchers? The composition of the team is always very important um, because, first of all, you need local knowledge. Local knowledge, but you also need local perspectives. When we're members of a society, we have a social position ourselves, like being more upper class or lower class or whatever and we view the society from this perspective too so both of these are important to have a social perspective from the inside and to have inside knowledge but then it's also good to have outsiders uh, because they don't understand anything or very little and they commit a lot of misunderstandings and in the process of uh, explaining how society works on the one hand the hidden Things assumptions yeah. the hidden assumptions of the locals are being uh, revealed and also um, the hidden assumptions of the westerners or non-locals uh, depending on the case are being revealed as well so these discussions are very helpful to arrive at uh, what we might call a more objective or let's rather say a more reflected uh, understanding of society. Give us a key example of what you maybe tussled with your Thai colleagues about. The main discussion is still going on. 
the question whether the pre-capitalist structure was more Banmyang or Mandala uh, in nature or more Sakdina in nature. Probably both is the case. It's more Sakdina towards the top and more Ban or Banmyang towards the bottom. But still the Thais insist, uh, the Thai colleagues in our team insist that uh, the Ban Myang has disappeared completely and has been eaten up by the Sak Dina. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> we both, hmm. That's because because the village, village society has become more, what, urbanized and capital conscious? I would say it's mainly because all the colleagues are from Bangkok and they don't <laughs> really oh. know the rest of the country. Ah, I think I think it's still very much there, the Ban Mueang structure, at least from where you know where my my relatives live. Um, so it, I was surprised to to hear that, but I guess if you don't have any relatives who live outside of the urban kind of centralized seat of power of Bangkok, it would be hard hard to imagine. I agree. It it might be worthwhile to to define terms just a little bit that um you know, habitus or acquired patterns um, that, that persist over time. Uh, give us a bit of the of the sociological definition. What, what, what does habitus mean? And where did it come from, that term anyways? Did any of us use the term habitus yet in the discussion? I'm not even quite sure. <laughs> it was in the title. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Before we start wantonly throwing it around, yeah. right? <laughs> so when I was speaking about patterns of action, uh, you could subsume all of these under the concept of habitus. And the concept of habitus um, is a very old one. In fact, it was hexis uh, with the Greeks. So it's 2,500 years old, at least, as a concept. And many academics, philosophers, and sociologists have used this concept. So it doesn't have a single origin and nobody has the authority of definition of the concept. We um, derived much of our theoretical background from Pierre Bourdieu, a French uh, sociologist who died in 2002. And he did studies of inequality, but uh, mainly in his adult life, exclusively in France. So that's a very particular society, especially it was in the 60s, 70s, when he did much of his research. So some of the things he says cannot be applied to, for example, Southeast Asia. And other things um, appear as distorted or biased when you apply them to other contexts. Would you never really define the concept of habitus? So we tried to do this in our project uh, as we went along. And what we sort of uh, subsume under the concept of habitus now is only socially relevant um, characteristics in the sense of characteristics that make social distinctions and not just distinctions in lifestyle or um, in culture or so on. And we focus our research on deep-seated uh, patterns, on deep-seated dispositions who cannot be easily changed later in life. Uh, so is it, how is it uh, different from just, you know, habits that people have or habitude, you know, 
habitual ways of acting or thinking or living or speaking? And why can't we just use a different term like habits? Yeah, what's the difference? I don't really care if you say habit or habitus <laughs> mm -hmm. as long as you define it. But habit, um, at least in English, applies something of a more ephemeral type of thing. So uh, for a certain time, you have the habit you of just putting it. Yeah. yeah, of putting on a shirt and then you prefer the T-shirt or so. The habitus, as we use it, is more deep-seated and you cannot change it as easily as a shirt. So, yeah, so it's psychological, a lot of it. Yeah, you can't really... Socio-psychological, yeah. mm -hmm. yes. So I have a, I have a nerd question. Um, you studied with Bourdieu, right? Yes. Uh, do you, any, any, uh, any Bourdieu stories? What was he like? For me personally, it was important uh, that he was really a bad speaker. So his um, interesting. His you mean a public lecturer? Yes. Really. His lectures were almost unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> he seemed often unprepared, which he might have been. Can we hire him? Here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then he just rambled on and on huh. and didn't have any structure and so on. And this was quite striking because. In French academia, the precision the, of it, yeah, yeah, the the public discourse is quite important. So, uh, people, yeah, the, you have a lot of people who speak very well and elaborately. Bourdieu didn't. So a lot of people left his lectures usually during the year, <laughs> and got <laughs> bored and didn't listen to it anymore. And interestingly, the editions that you get now of these lectures don't really portray this. Yeah, that's why I'm so surprised, you know, because his writing, I, I well, enjoy his Well, his legacy, writing. yeah, goes on. I mean, uh, yeah. It's shocking to me, yeah. <laughs> An exclusive here now, on the... <laughs> I know, now I have to go find some, you know, B-sides to, <laughs> to right, right, finally right. curated uh, lectures so I can experience the real... Right. And... Um, I myself then turned away from Bourdieu after studying with him because I found it so weak and unconvincing the way he brought it across. And I went to study with Habermas then, mm -hmm. who was much more convincing mm -hmm. and concise uh, in his discourse. And I still think very highly of him. But then when I did empirical research later as a graduate student and PhD student, I rediscovered Bourdieu as being much more helpful than Habermas or others in this empirical research. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up with Bourdieu, um, not because of studying with him, but in spite of studying <laughs> with him. <laughs> we can only hope for yeah. so much as a professor, right? <laughs> Despite it all, my theory still holds. Um, so some of the some of the habitus types in in Thailand I thought were really interesting and maybe as a as a quick comparison to to Laos is a um, the way social mobility might or might not work uh, there like with the um, the puyai or the big men is that you say mm -hmm. um, um, how does uh, so how does this uh, what does this mean today in the, the some of these types across maybe the the, the Lao and the Thai example. 
all societies that um, do not experience a major transformation become rather stable in their structures. This is nothing that is radical or leftist or extraordinary for me to say. All sociologists, also conservative uh, sociologists, have remarked this fact. Um, and if you think about it, it's, uh, it's rather common sense too. So Thailand has not really experienced much of a transformation, not only after the construction of the nation state, but even before, if you go back to Sak Dinar times. The transformation that we talked about earlier in the late 18th uh, century was not as much of, say, a real break with the past as in many other societies or most other societies. So this is uh, quite special and therefore it would be surprising to see a lot of social mobility in Thailand. Actually, we don't see a lot of mobility. What is surprising is that we see any at all. That is surprising. And um, I think it is due to the fact that um, the capitalist transformation is still going on. This uh, includes technological innovation, but it also uh, includes uh, social change, especially rural urban migration, and then education. And both of these factors um, sort of combine with the technological innovation, globalization, and so on. So there are spaces for people to become rich, to become educated, to become become skilled and so on, uh, which would be new opportunities for their families. That is, But not to cross those firm lines, the firm class lines, I or, think or to move within class? I think uh, these lines are crossed, but our material does not allow for any generalizations there yet, but the, the real mobilities are few, are few. And of course, in Laos, it would be much more because... Yeah, if I was a betting person, I would have said like, oh, it's more mobile in Thailand. But you, I think you changed my mind. So go. So why in Laos? Uh, in Laos, first of all, the capitalist transformation is very recent and also very profound. So it hit people on the head, basically, from one day to the other. And before... Uh, the Communist Party ruled with, uh, say, almost complete authority. And the party itself was not only a promoter of uh, equality, but also a motor of uh, equality. That is, people from the countryside could rise through the party apparatus uh, up to yeah, basically even the top, you could say. This is particular for this uh, very structure. So you have two movements combined, Communist Party and Capitalist Transformation. And you compared that transformation in Laos with what happened in um, Cambodia, in that, okay, so you have three countries that have historically similar social uh, structure um, of the Ban Mueang in, in Thailand, in Laos, and in Cambodia, but then you have vastly different futures, right? So we yeah. have a... Uh, one that was never a colony, one that has this kind of social uh, intervent socialist intervention um, mid-century, and then so can you explain a little bit 
the third uh, comparative uh, candidate in Cambodia because there's more layers there too, right? Mm, I would say in Cambodia it's fewer layers. Well, one layer was completely removed. Exactly, in a way. In a way, you could also say all layers were completely removed, uh, but they reappeared because you cannot build a society from scratch. As you remember, this was the idea of the Khmer Rouge, mm. to reconstruct society and humans <coughs> on that yeah. basis. But then humans have a habitus um, that you cannot just take away and replace with something else that you construct from scratch. But the habitus takes not just a human life to transform, but generations to transform. And uh, all the communists in the regions had to find this out. And most of them acknowledged this, you know, out of their own will. But the Cambodians did not really. So they were removed forcefully. But if we then also look at uh, Vietnam, for example, we have yet another structure because we have a long socialist transformation in the north, which really made an impact on society even much more than in Laos. And we have a more capitalist society in the south with a longer transformation. And now both of these structures form one nation state. And that's quite interesting. So you have a society which looks a bit more like Thailand, namely South Vietnam, also with the long tradition of a Ban Myung or Mandala political substructure. And you have a more Chinese-influenced communist north both in one society and it becomes even more chaotic in Burma or Myanmar uh, because there you have the uh, Shan, Mandala, Ban Myung, which is the same as in Laos or Thailand exactly the same structure uh, but then you have a lot of ethnic groups with uh, rather particular matriarchal and patriarchal uh, lineage structures and you have the Muslim uh, structures in the very west and you have the Bama, the mainstream structure which is a more integrated almost Sakdina type of uh, society. And you have all these structures in one country. And Are there plans to do extensive research? You, got, you said 80 interviews in Thailand. How, are there plans to do this mainland Southeast Asia wide? kind of the depth? Yeah, it depends on the persons uh, who want to cooperate. So I don't have any plans. It's Is just this an official recruitment? <laughs> no. Yeah. We can help you Do recruit. Do you want to put out a call for, for <laughs> researchers who want it? No, no, it's just whenever people are interested to cooperate, then it happens or it doesn't. Maybe um, this is a good time to maybe talk about the your your institute and maybe um, tell us about a bit about where we might see some of this research coming out and um, and a bit about uh, um, opportunities for if people are interested in this kind of work. So we didn't publish all that much because it's an ongoing work. Yeah. But since we've been at it for 15 years, we thought, okay, at some point we <laughs> do have to at least show people something's going on. So we did publish a comparative work of Brazil, India, Germany, and Laos, oh, wow. of course, in 2017 uh, with Rutledge. And we have published 
individual books and papers and so on about many of the countries. And we submitted uh, the paper on Thailand to a journal in Singapore. So this may come out soon and you find bits and pieces everywhere. I intend to sort of write a grand comparison next year or so. Yeah, we're uh, well, well, we'll look forward to it. And on behalf of uh, John and Ganjana, uh, thank you, Wojcik. Uh, we'd love to have you back. Thank you. Thank you.